from one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Delighted to welcome back to John Hannam Meets, the one and only Brian Murphy. <laughs> Hello, John. Good to see you. Yeah, oh, it's good to see you. I mean, we've seen each other over and off. For quite a number of years now, aren't we? Telling me. And we're both corkheads, of course, aren't we? Yes, yes. Yeah. Can you explain what corkhead really means? Well, it means you live you, on the Isle of Wight, born on the born, Isle of Wight. Born on the Isle of Wight. We were both born on the Isle of Wight and you have never left. No, that's right. I, I went abroad to seek fame and fortune. Yes. I'll have to go back because it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> You've done all right. <laughs> not bad, not bad. <laughs> Let's just go back to Ventnor. I know yeah. you're a proud islander, aren't you? You yeah. love going back. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, it brings back, obviously, memories, especially as a little boy. One of my strongest memories was coming out of the railway station. This, this, this is really showing my age now, and I? The railway station. You remember the top of the hill in Ventnor? Yes. And my grandparents lived lower down that road and uh, on the left. I remember it very vividly. And as a little boy, great delight, i get out of the train and run down the hill pell-mell you know like a windmill arms waving legs with and i used to go so fast because of the hill <laughs> that i used to fall you know bang over what's his name um, and uh, i couldn't keep up with myself but it was it was a great delightful memory and i don't try it now when i go back <laughs> But the, the hill's still there, but sadly the railway isn't, I don't think. Your mum and dad were sort of interested in amateur dramatics. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think uh, I've got a picture of them uh, together on Ride Pier. Mum's in a Busby. I can't remember what dad is, because dad was in, the, was in the army then when they met. And uh, they used to do amateur dramatics, mostly, I gather, sort of musicals and things of that nature. But they had a love and interest in the theatre. Uh, which they obviously imparted onto me because they used to go to the theatre. When we moved to the mainland eventually, we used to go to the theatre pretty regularly. And it was the Variety Theatre initially, mm. which we could see. We lived in Portsmouth, next step, as it were, from the island. And we used to go to the theatre there. And my first ambition was to be a variety performer because I saw so many wonderful performers doing extraordinary things um, and I want to be one of those uh, and I, I guess I want to be by myself as well because most performers were on, on the stage by themselves but then eventually we used to go to reps repertory companies and and I got the smell of grease paint there and then they did different plays each week and I could imagine myself in various different roles so that when I got home you know I used to be an old man much older than I am now, <laughs> and uh, uh, to do all sorts of impersonations. It was their love of the theatre, which was obviously passed on very strongly to me. And I got a great deal of encouragement from them. They weren't wealthy people by any means, very humble, but they encouraged me. They, they couldn't help me truly financially, but mum would always bake something for me when I was now living by myself as it were or or find something to be of help and what was the biggest and most valuable thing of all was their encouragement 
I know going back to Ventnor, you saw one or two plays at the old town hall. Yeah. Yeah, every time I pass the town hall now, which is still there too, isn't it? Mm. I haven't been inside it. Could you put a show on, a play on? Don't think so. They don't know, do they? No. That was the weekly rep for the summer season. Yes. I remember performances, but not who the names were. And Ride, we used to go to Ride and Sandown. They all have it. It's, it's wonderful old theatres, aren't they? It's still, some of them are still going. Yes. You used to have your own sort of tiny theatre indoors, didn't you? Or? Yeah, I had, when I was at home in, in in London, my first, what I could call it, well, well, my initial theatre was an air raid shelter. Yes. I am giving my age away now, aren't I? <laughs> um, it was, it was uh, obviously, uh, it was a relatively secure building it had to be <laughs> yeah. to withstand bombing. Um, and we used to get night lights. I don't remember night lights, John, you know, little candles. They're still available, aren't they? Yeah. Candles and uh, they made perfect footlights because put a stream of those down on the ground and then get behind them and you had a stage and we invite friends and they would come and we put a show on and then eventually we moved and there was room enough for me to create in the basement of the house that we were living in a stage, a permanent stage which I use the bunks the bunks from an old air raid shelter. I laid them on the floor and then covered them with some planks. So I got a little stage. And uh, I think I put up the curtain rail. I don't know how I managed that now. I can't do it now. Uh, and mum made the curtains. What I did, first off, I invited the kids and they would, they would pay a halfpenny to sit on the floor <laughs> or a penny to sit on the Welsh dresser because I thought that was a dress circle. I was very grand in my intentions. And behind the closed curtains, I used to do what I called radio plays. I would do all the voices, and I'd do the sound effects as well. But it was perfect radio. And I, I, I remember at the time there was a, a radio uh, called Dick Barton Special Agent. Oh, yes. You're old enough to remember yes. that. Yes. Dick Barton Special Agent, which was on for a quarter of an hour, wasn't it, in yeah. the evening. And wherever children were playing on the streets or whatever, they would always be indoors in time for tea to listen to Dick Barton Special Agent. And I, I created my own, and it was called Dick Bath Chair Special Patient. <laughs> Um, and I would do this behind the closed curtains and sound effects with sort of toy motors to create uh, cars. And uh, when I pull the curtains back to take a bow and I could see a row of faces looking absolutely dumbstruck and amazed because I think they had no idea what was going on at all. <laughs> but it didn't deter me. I kept going. Eventually, obviously, you went to the RAF and then yeah. you sort of came out and you wanted to go into showbiz didn't you yes i was fortunate enough to keep up my activities in amateur dramatics which was at the borough polytechnic uh when i was about 14 or 15 at school uh i was in the borough of southwark and they decided the local authorities to coincide with shakespeare's birthday the 23rd of april to show uh, uh, perform that week a week of Shakespeare and different amateur companies were invited to play each night and the final big show on the Saturday was from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and Lillian Harrison was the teacher from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art senior one and she recruited from the various schools 
she recruited a cast to do the Midsummer Night's Dream, an obvious choice for young people in a way. I was cast as Flute the Bellows Mender, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed doing. And during the course of rehearsals, I got sick. I got bronchitis, which apparently I'd had every year. And I would do, I was told, until I was about 14 or so. But at any rate, I had to have two weeks out. So during those two weeks out, instead of lying resting in bed, I worked out all the business I was going to do when it came to the final scene when, when the, the, the gang of workmen called to the Duke's Palace to perform their play that they rehearsed for the nuptials. And I rehearsed all this comic business. Now, of course, I didn't know that that is really very uh, bad for, for a professional actress would be appalled at somebody sort of practising and rehearsing by themselves and then doing it on the night only in front of them. But, of course, what happened was I made everybody laugh. But as that was what the scene was about, that these workmen were trying to entertain the Duke, but none of them can get their words out because of all this business that I was doing. <laughs> And at the end of it, everybody said, oh, that was so funny. But I was also told it was very naughty, but I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> but on the strength of that, Lillian Harrison, who ran the evening classes as well as classes at the Royal Academy, she engaged me because I was old enough to do evening classes and we did The Merchant of Venice and I played Lancelot Gobbo. This time I rehearsed all my business on stage with the fellow actors. I'd learned that much. And I got a scholarship that was being awarded. Um, and uh, But I was too young to, to take it up at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art because I wasn't yet 16. So I, I think it was put on the shelf, as it were. But the next year, for some reason or other, it wasn't available. And then I had to do my national service. So I couldn't get out of that. But when I finished my national service, I applied of the possibility of picking up the, the scholarship. But unfortunately, they said they could not award it retrospectively. So I wasn't allowed to use that. The Royal Academy of Dramatic Art were very good to me and encouraged me to be a, a, a member, but they didn't have scholarships at the time. They had two that were available for overseas. Uh, so I wasn't... So I used the money that I'd saved from doing my RAF stint. I did it by signing on for an extra year, because if you signed on for an extra year, you got double money. Right. And I was able to live off that <laughs> single amount. And with the money that I saved, I was able to go to the Royal Academy for, I thought, at least I'll get through the first year. I didn't quite. I had to do other jobs and things like that. But I couldn't do the two years. Uh, so I had to leave. But I hope and think I learned quite a great deal until I met Joan Littlewood, of course. Mm. Which is, is that what you were going on to say? I was going to no? say, and you met Euther there, of course, didn't you? Euther Joyce. I met Euther because the, the next person who took over from Lillian Harrison at the Borough Polytechnic was a lovely man. He, he was a teacher of mathematics, uh, Tom Vaughan. I always call him my original mentor because he encouraged everything for me to do and gave me wonderful roles including Hamlet and um, I played those and he said there's a wonderful company of professionals that have arrived at Stratford East now I know Tom was a communist in his politics 
And apparently so were Joan and Jerry's theatre workshop in those days. But they ran this theatre, but they were a bit frowned on because of their politics. And so they weren't mainstream by any means. They were very much fringe before there was fringe. But the Stratford East Theatre was an old run-down Victorian theatre at Stratford East. It had housed all sorts of melodramas and variety turns and things. And it was run-down. Um, the, the seats were nailed together by nails and things like uh, there used to be complaints when we had a full house because the ladies snagged their cotton stockings on them <laughs> and I took a friend and we watched with Tom it was Richard II and Richard II was being played at the Old Vic where I often frequented to, uh, to see the Shakespeare then and John Neville was playing the role of Richard II but Harry Corbett Remember Harry Corbett, mm. reach world fame as it were, in step toes. He was playing Richard II. And I sat down with my friend in almost the front row, and the curtain was up. Now, that was quite a unique thing at, in those days to go into a theatre with the curtain up, and you could see the scenery. And I thought, oh, can't they afford a curtain or something like that? But then they realised I could take all the curtain in. I could see the scenery, I could look at it and wonder how it's going to be used and things like that. And all those things that you can get away with, but when you're watching a show for the first time, it takes those first few minutes for you to take all that in. And it's quite likely that you don't take in the script or the play that you're watching because you're busy watching the scenery and looking at your programme. But you had all the time to do this before the play commenced. And then the next thing I remember, there was noise coming from the wings. And they were voices. And I looked to my friend Bernard and I said, oh, that's a bit amateur, isn't it? I mean, people talking backstage, good heavens. Uh, and then it got louder and louder and it seemed to be a, a row, an argument going on. And we really got upset and thought, well, we're going to be like this. this is hardly professional. And then burst, that's the only one I can say, burst upon the stage was Harry Corbett and George A. Cooper playing Bolingbroke. And they were going at it, each other, in this uh, row. Hammers and tongs, you know, and a genuine row. And we literally fell out of our seats. Not difficult, because as I said, it was only nailed together. But <laughs> it was so striking. And the whole play, and whereas at the old Vic, which I'd been very happy with in the past at any rate, they had beautiful costumes, and they looked beautiful, and gold and ornate and everything like that. The costumes weren't what I call costumes, they were clothes. They were period clothes, but they were clothes. They looked that you worked in them, except when they were attending with all the pomp and ceremony. But otherwise, people wore their clothes, which were wrinkled and cracked and dirty and things like that. Nothing pretty about the production at all. But by crikey, did it make you sit up and listen? And I was so impressed by that. And I said to Tom, who had brought me, that they're fantastic, aren't they? He said, well, why don't you write to them? So I said, OK, I did. And I was granted uh, an audition by Joan Littlewood, who I never met, of course. And I was ushered on the stage, and there was a voice from the auditorium, which was dark. Hello, what's your name? And all that. Uh, and have you got something you want to do for me? And I said, yes. I wanted to do my soliloquy from Hamlet. And she said, all right, well, off you go. And I did it to the best of what I thought my ability, 
And there was quite a lot of silence afterwards. (laughs) And she said, hmm, now listen, I want you to pretend that you are an electrician and you're on the stage working, because that's what you think you're supposed to be doing, something with the lights, and you get pushed onto the stage in front of an audience. And I said, oh, but in actual fact, I was quite exhilarated by the idea, because... I was what I didn't know the word was then. I was improvising. And I thoroughly enjoyed bursting on the stage and talking 19 to the dozen about where are the lights and everything like that and that. There was a couple of laughs, I think. And then she said, that's that's fine, that's enough. Then she made me do a, a movement thing. I was trapped in a tunnel, I seem to think. And I had to fall down a hole and be trapped in a tunnel. All this was made clear to me later on, of course, but not at that time. And when I finished, she said, well, she came upon the stage and I met her, and she said, that was very good, very interesting. And she said, how old are you? And I said, I was about 22. And she said, you're very young, and you haven't had a great deal of experience of life. It's very needful that one gets some experience of life, not not just theatre and acting and things of that nature, because she knew I'd gone to RADA. And she said, I advise that what you do is continue with some acting and drama classes or whatever and come back to me later on. And I left a bit down thinking, oh, that's that's the big elbow really, isn't it? Uh, we'll see you later. She did take me to the cafe and I met her partner, Jerry Raffles, and we had a long chat all together. And I was made very welcome and friendly and everything like that, but obviously I didn't have the job. So I went home, and at the time I was working part-time for Odom's Press, packing books, I think. And I went in on the Saturday morning to do my half-day, and a telegram arrived. Again, give me my age away. Telegrams. (laughs) They go out. A telegram said, join us on Monday. I think that's all it said. Right. And I thought... Oh, oh, oh. And in my cynical mind, I thought, obviously somebody's dropped dead or something. (laughs) But I did. I joined them on Monday. Uh, There was no explanation. I was made a a part of the company. Harry Corbett had left by then. So George Cooper. There was Maxwell Shaw, Avis Bunnage, some very good actors I I learnt to discover. And Harry Corbett did come back later on in, in another season and things. Um, I worked for Joan. I did not understand at the beginning what a word she was saying. It meant nothing to me. It was totally different from anything I did at Royal Academy of Dramatic Art or evening classes. She said, we must get you out of that terrible acting. I loved acting, obviously, um, <laughs> and expressing myself. And she she wanted reality, really. That's what she wanted on the stage, even from the classics. It took me a long time to learn not only what she meant, but how to do it. But she suffered me. We had one or two rows along the way, but eventually I began to pick up what she was saying, understand it, and put it into practice. And we went on to do some wonderful things, Ending with Joan, of course, in Oh, What a Lovely War, mm. which was a, a great, but she did some marvellous shows. We used to go to the Paris Festival, and on about three occasions, the company took the prize from her work. So I basically could be argued, I learnt all, all my craft, if there is such a word and thing, from from Joan. and that. But, of course, all other work that followed afterwards 
was of a different sort. It, mm. it, it was necessary, obviously, and I tried to put into practice what I'd learned from Joan. But I, I went into reps and things like that, uh, and, and the West End, which was meant to be the big place to be for an actor at the time. And remember, it's early days of television. I'm talking about 1950s, late 50s. John Hannam, host of British Radio's longest-running non-stop chat show, This Is Your Life. Some of your early shows, you did Probation Officer, Avengers, Egg Cars. You were like, yes. Callan, you did, did. didn't I? You were more serious than uh, comedy. Yes. Yes, I never had thoughts that I was just going to be comedy. I love comedy and I love to hear the sound of an audience laughing because of something you've done uh, or even said because of the author. <laughs> um, but no, they were serious. I think in the Avengers, I played the villain. Did you? Uh, yeah. Um, and and uh, some other things. Oh, it, it was, I was, as you say, I was playing straight roles. And I did in my time, even, I mean, I, I played the Hamlet. I played Romeo. So I played Shylock on, on the road with the young Vic. I wanted to be a fully rounded actor. But it's television that sort of pushes you down a channel. And then, of course, you've got a large audience, which no theatre could ever play to. If you think that, like, the success of George and Mildred, each week played to 21, 2 million, yes. which is more than a third of the population that could view, you could never do that in your lifetime in a theatre, could you? However many plays you performed in and packed out it was. thought at one time I would... I don't say I would prefer to have been a straight actor because I enjoyed doing all of it. But, as I say, television seemed to have led me down the comic path. Well, Man About the House, that was great for you, wasn't it? That was the beginning of George. Yeah. George and Mildred. Yeah. We were only, we were only sort of uh, small roles. We, I think we, on, on the whole, we appeared in about three scenes in Man About the House, um, but they were meant to be middle-aged. Well, a more older middle age, I mean. Um, so I, I grew my moustache. Yes. Um, and uh, combed my hair sort of sideways across the top <laughs> <laughs> um, and to make it look go a long way and play older. Uh, that's why people sometimes now come up to me and say, you haven't changed much, have you? I said, well, I was old then, <laughs> but I'm old now. <laughs> I used a lot of makeup in those days. <laughs> they were funny to play. They were Brian Cook and Johnny Mortimer. I found myself easy to, 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 you know, to play. And they responded to us as well. Once they knew what we were giving them back, they wrote for us and, and gave us hurdles to jump over. And they became popular that we were playing more in, in, in the plot lines. Mm. Uh, and we began to even have our own story. And I think at one time, near towards what was going to be the end of Man About the House, Philip Jones, who was head of light entertainment at uh, Thames, said, you do know that there's a lot of mileage to be got from these characters. And youth uh, in particular, who was a little bit older than me and, uh, and perhaps more experienced, said, oh, yes, we, not to Philip, but to me, she said, oh, we've heard that before. And we, so, <laughs> so we sort of shrugged that off. But one week we were doing the final series of Man About the House and 
on the Sunday when they put the set up and in the studio and all the cameras get ready and prepared for the run-through and then in the evening the audience come. Well, on that day, we meet again, as it were, with the stage crew and one of them came up to us and said, oh, it's great about George and Mildred, isn't it? And uh, I remember I was saying, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you're getting your own show. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll believe that when it happens. He said, what do you mean? We're building the set now. (laughs) And it was true. They had the set ready or some of it constructed ready for the series as and when we could do it, which was not very long after Man About the House. And and so and then it became, as it were, history because our first outing, we were number one and, and, and played to over 20 minutes. And I think it's a record and still is that our first outing was 11 episodes, not the usual seven and six because that was the block that was created for overseas sales, i.e. 13 in one year. We, we had to do 11 because of other commitments. And each week we were number one with over 20. And I, I, I don't think that's been uh, equaled by any comedy show that a, a first new series was number one for 11 consecutive weeks. Wasn't it 46 Peacock Crescent Hampton Wick? Was yeah, that, that yeah. already addressed. Yes. Well remembered. I don't think I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a genuine, I mean, the, the house was, was genuine. It was just up the road from the studios and became famous. I don't know what it did for the owners. Because I think they had people calling on them. Can, can we see George or Mildred? Uh, but it, it, yes, it, it, it was local. It, it was quite posh. I never understood to, what dared to ask to this day how they managed uh, because he never worked much did he? No, he, he certainly didn't. didn't earn any money and as far as I know Mildred didn't have any money so they didn't have much money between how they managed to move because <laughs> it wasn't really a council house was it but it didn't matter it you was just, we met, obviously, the posh people, which was the real conflict of the series. Brian, you were certainly hempacked, weren't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yet, yet, he didn't truly suffer it, somehow. <laughs> he, he, he got out of it. He, he, somebody said, but he never worked. I said, yes, he did. He worked very hard not to work. Yeah. He, he kept himself unemployed for a very long time. And when he did jobs, he didn't do them very well. Poor old Mildred was very long-suffering. But I couldn't help thinking there was there was nevertheless a lot of tenderness still there. It didn't show itself all the time, but it, it was there, and he was very lost. Your when... character wasn't very virile, was he? No, <laughs> no. The number of people used to stop me. Can you imagine? Because people did associate the, the role uh, of an actor on television, particularly in those early days, of sort of relative early days of television, with being the person almost. And I remember in a pub, uh, a, a chap coming up, he said, he said uh, uh, can I ask your advice? I didn't know him from Adam, and he didn't introduce himself. <laughs> so I said, uh, well, you, you, you can, but what about? He said, well, you know, the, you've got the problem, haven't you? <laughs> 
<laughs> we hummed and hard for I said, yeah, but I've got to be, well, I've got lots of problems, if you must know. But <laughs> what one in particular? And he said, you know, the one where you can't do the, uh, you know, he wouldn't mention it. <laughs> but I got the gist of what he meant. I said, oh, yeah. He said, well, I've, I've got the same problem. <laughs> he said, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure like, like tonight. He said, you know, well, I've, got, I've got to go home to the wife and she'll be expecting me to, you know. Um, so I said, you know what the best thing to do? He said, no, what? I said, have another pint and stay with me. <laughs> but I must admit, that character stayed with me because forever after, I thought, oh, that's how you play him because he, he would never say the word. <laughs> he always intimated it, but he couldn't, he couldn't manage it, as it were. <laughs> I think you and I met on Bournemouth Pier first. Yeah, it was 77 because um, we'd just done Cinderella at the uh, Palladium. With Youth and I playing ah, the Ugly yeah, Sisters, yeah. and Richard O'Sullivan with Buttons, uh, Roger de Courcy was was in it. He was he was playing Prince Charming, I think, um, and Nookie Nookie the Bear. And we went to Bournemouth for the first summer season because the grades ran all those that yeah. theatre, yeah. and that's part of the summer season. And we played the end of the pier, and we played twelve performances a week which I'd never done before on stage, no youth I hadn't either, uh, 12, um, which was quite taxing, particularly after a pantomime, which we'd also been doing yeah. 12 performances a week. But it was totally sold out. Sold out. People came who'd never been to the theatre before. They brought children. Yeah. They brought, I remember bringing children down to the front and, and, and plonked them almost onto the stage. I always remember you trying to get up the pier without being recognised. Oh, yeah. You had dark glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't make any difference. No difference whatsoever. Who are you hiding from? Um, <laughs> no, uh, there, there was no way. And I think lots of people actually thought we were married. Yes. And on, many hoped that we were married. Um, uh, but we got on very well together because at Euthan, as we know, we worked at Theatre Workshop together. Uh, and as it turned out, we complimented each other in our acting, which was, as far as the producer and the director were concerned, they didn't know that we'd had this relationship before as actors. they just cast what they thought would be the right people for, for the role. And it turned out to be a bonus for all of us because mm -hmm. they said, oh, we didn't realise these characters have got a, a much bigger, longer life and turned them into, you know, every day. People always said there was a George and Mildred in their street. Oh, yes. It was usually them, but they would never say. <laughs> <laughs> They'd always say it was the person next door. But it is true, wasn't it? And, and it's very, very popular in Spain. Was it? Spain and Italy. And Spain, uh, Yuta had a, um, uh, a love for, for Spain because she used to go there every holiday. Uh, just outside Malaga, she had a flat. Uh, she used to go regularly each year. Uh, and she, she said, oh, what's marvellous about the Spanish? Why they like it is that the Spanish, who's very macho, but the wife knows, in fact, that he isn't. It's only big show. That I'm the greatest Spanish lover, and obviously, um, she said it's not like that's why they're laughing, and the man was laughing because he saw a silly wimp of an Englishman. <laughs> so it's popular in Italy and Holland, amazing, and such places, and Australia, of course, obviously, because yeah. lots of Brits. There, how how did you cope with fame? Because all of a sudden, everybody knew you, didn't they? I was fortunate. Um, 
I was married, and not to Linda then. I was married to Carol, and I had two younger sons. So I had a home life, and that brought me down to earth. Because however much fame or success or pat on the back, you go home, and the wife turns you and says, by the way, the drains are blocked. <laughs> so you roll your sleeves up and get out and do something, back, which is perfectly normal. I think show business did not have the front page like it does today. It, I mean, you, you know as a journalist, John, that when you read the paper and the headlines on a paper, is it's about the lovers of or somebody you love or what he or she has got up to show business. That, that wasn't back in the 60s or 70s. Show business never of that sort made the front page or actors made the front page like that all they were talked about possibly respectfully or occasionally but an accident would occur but not they weren't given this uh, celebrity status which is what people get now isn't it so it, it was a bit easier it certainly changed the life because we worked very hard and solidly each day um, and people did know who we were because they could see us on the box so yeah. there, there were places we couldn't go to anymore yeah. certainly to the pub where somebody would nudge you and say hey by the way mate um, and, and restaurants <laughs> yes youth used to get quite impatient we were in a, a respectable restaurant I think it was in Bournemouth right and we were having the meal and, and uh, with two friends I think and uh a woman came up, she'd just finished her meal, obviously, we were in the middle of ours, and she plonked her book down, she said, sign that, please. And Yusuf said, uh, yes, we will, would you mind waiting until we finish eating? Which was perfectly uh, reasonable. I think I'm a softie, so I would have signed it, but I saw what Yusuf was saying, so I didn't want to cross her. And, and, and I said, yes, yes, we, we will happily sign it. Well, she said, oh, I can't wait till you finish. And she really gave a stick, she said. And at the end of it, when, when Uther was said, well, in that case, we won't be able to sign it, will we? And she said, well, I'll never watch your programme again. <laughs> and we made a real enemy, I think, of her. Uh, and we were asked to do lots of other things, obviously interviews and chat shows and um, Bonnie's Baby competition. Yeah. <laughs> That's another one you can't win. Um, so there were lots of calls upon us that meant time. I, I didn't get so much of a home life. We toured uh, with the play version of it and we went abroad, so I was away for four or five months at a time from home. Yeah, it, it, it changed our lifestyle, but it didn't give us that, I think, which is uh, um, a flimsy paper worth of value, the celebrity status. I, I, I think that's not good and healthy for anybody, really. Quite right. Mm. <laughs> It's great, he's got a swell personality He meets and greets the stars with such amenity Good enough to make you coming out of the street John Hannamay That's right Last night before I was looking through your research and 
I thought I'm going to put on what I think is one of the funniest things you ever did. Episode oh. three of the Booze Cruise. Oh, right. <laughs> and the ashes. Yes. Mother-in-law's ashes. Oh, yeah, taking the mother-in-law. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then the ashes. That was a good series, wasn't yeah. it? But it, the ashes blew away. And the blue, uh, of course they would do, wouldn't they? I mean, the, the difficulty always is sometimes, John, was getting away, not being just George again, because often people wanted Yes. scripts they sent me they had to be George but he wasn't strictly George because he, he was married and he had a perfectly good respectable married life one yes. would assume wasn't he you and uh, Anne Reed were great yeah yeah and he wasn't he wasn't henpecked no by any means so so he was different so it's nice to play something like that the writing was very good I thought, and a good cast. When had. you lost the ashes on route, you sort of put your pipe stuff in there, didn't you? Oh, yeah. oh yes, it was the pot, wasn't it? Yeah. And I got high on it. You had some great lines. You said, I don't know what's happened to mother-in-law, but she's put on weight. Yeah. <laughs> so I've putting all these ashes in uh, Oh, that was some good. I was very fortunate still to continue a, a life after George because yes. there was, it was an indication people said... What about doing a series um, uh, of George managing by himself, which would be a sort of comforting thing, a bit humorous, obviously, for lots of, you know, widowers. But in the end, we decided it was too close to the death of youth uh, mm. to try something else. We did attempt one or two things, but I think uh, it wasn't it wasn't easy. But I always had the theatre to go back to, yeah. and I always enjoyed being in the theatre. <laughs> the wacky backy scenes. Wacky were... backy, that's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you did so many things when you <laughs> under the influence. <laughs> ah, ah, I, love, I, I tell you what, it's nice now. I'm glad you're laughing, because um, <laughs> I look at some old programmes, which I would never have looked at immediately after, because I wasn't all that happy sometimes with my performance when I watched it afterwards but now I can watch it with all the separation of the years in between yes. and I rather look upon the person I'm looking at as somebody else you, uh, that's another Brian Murphy. do you remember the song you sang on top of the hill with the ashes oh yeah well, what was it uh, dear you were dressed as a woman weren't yeah, you yeah and I was mate of course it was uh, it, it was Anne Reed and what's his name it was uh, what's his name what, a joke yeah the whole thing was a joke yeah she was doing it to uh, sort of punish me and mm. I was doing it because it was in the will and I thought I'd get some money you yes. were after some clocks, but it didn't work out really, did it? No, no, no it no. didn't. It didn't. It, 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 it didn't at all. Oh, no, that was a good thing. Oh, Anne Reid took off after that too, didn't she? Telling me. And of course, Alvin lasted a summer wine. That was good for you. Yeah. I'd, I'd always wanted to be in one. and I was asked to be in one once and I wasn't free. And eventually um, there was another request for a character that I could play. And I was happy to go along and do it. And I said, I've always wanted to do an episode of this. Uh, I loved all the cast. I knew most of them. I would work with most of them at some point. I love Roy Clark's writing and work. So I did this character of Alvin, who was trying to fly a homemade kite over the houses of Yorkshire. And when we got to the studio, because it's all obviously on location, when we got to the, do the studio work, the interiors, Alan J. Bell said uh, during a break, can, can I have a word with you, Brian? I said, yes. He said, how would you like to be a sort of um, 
uh, in the regular, regular. I said, what, what do you mean? Uh, he said, well, a character thing will pop up from time to time. And, and uh, I said, well, yeah, I'd be flattered. Uh, I, 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 I have enjoyed myself this this particular time period. And, and I love the writing and everything and the character. Yes, thank you. I, I, yeah. Well, of course, it wasn't an irregular. It became a regular character. Yeah. And I was still there eight years later. I think they forgot to sack me. <laughs> You've done some great shows. You did Alf. For Lester, when you're driving, yeah. Somebody, yeah. somebody wrote to me like you just said about booze cruise and said, "You know, one of the funniest series I saw." I, do you know why? Because I think recently, I'm not quite sure whether it was Martin Clunes. They did a a, a driving yes, they did yeah. series, but yeah. it, it wasn't didn't quite take off. No, it didn't. No, no. Um, and I wondered if they were floating it again. But I thought it was a very good a series with lots of stunts in it. Mm. But sadly. Um, uh, the, the author died shortly afterwards. He Dudley Long, who was Long. He was the tall policeman. It, right. It, it, I said, you must have had some. He said, yes, I've heard them all. <laughs> um, and he'd written this as his first one, but he sadly died afterwards. So there was obviously no more health or less. But I thought so, it was a lovely idea, a good one. And we had a good cast. Okay? Uh, and it, it played them, because it came out on BBC Two, and it played them to five million, which was unheard of, apparently, for BBC Two at the time. Mm. BBC Two was used to getting one million people. Mm. And the main, obviously, BBC One got the mainstream figures. And so there was a great hope to do it some more, but... Because of the author dying, that was that was the end of that. I would have happily done those as well. And George Manners, of course, in Brookside. Yes. <laughs> I'd never done um soap. And I thought, I'm not sure that I'd be up to wanting to tie myself down to any soap for any great length of time. I'd like to test the muscles, but I wouldn't want to be tied down. But when I spoke to the producer he said no it's all right it's, it's, it's a self-contained story and he said as a double assurance he dies at the end <laughs> so I said oh all right and I did it so I did six weeks of my foot in the water of a soap you also did Mrs Merton and Malcolm of course yeah yeah oh, you'll remember it. that was a another I enjoyed that I see I I loved uh, Caroline um she, I thought she was a good writer and Craig. Mm. And funny enough, it got bad treatment from the press down south, but not up north. And on the first week after its first outing, and I got in a taxi to go to a studio, and the driver said, oh, I love that show. He said, it's just, that song is just like me. He said, I live with my dad, mum. I said, oh, really? He said, oh, yeah, it's just, that's just what, just how I am with my mother. But they never got that down south. They, they rather treated him as if he was a retarded son. He wasn't. That wasn't her intention at all. And he was a lovely, a bit vague, obviously a touch of the Alzheimer's creeping onto him. Um, and he sang sang to his friend in, in bed who was sick and ill, I seem to remember. Yeah, that, I, that, I've had a lot of nice... Series. You did the cafe fairly recently. The cafe. Yeah. Yep. Only about three or four years ago. That was Craig again. And um, you did Holby as well. I've done a Holby. I've done two Holbys. Yes. Uh, <laughs> not the same bed, but I've done Holbys. <laughs> uh, 
Now, I've done, I've done a lot of uh, sort of one-offs, as it were, but I'm not, I'm not expecting a great deal now because I'm in my early 80s now, uh, and you can't guarantee how well you're going to be next week so quickly you can tie yourself down. But two or three days here and there, if anybody out there is listening especially Hollywood, um, or Yorkshire. <laughs> yes. I'll be gladly free for two or three days. But what I think I've been very fortunate, I've, I've not been taken over by the business. I, I've had it, I've had some say in the matter. I've had some wonderful series that have sort of um, given me some success and things, that, whatever that means, uh, but a lot of pleasure. And, and it's given me a roof over my head. But I don't run the, the large, expensive cars or want to or live that sort of lifestyle. I didn't expect it when I started out because television wasn't so uh, a, a, a second sort of offence to actors. As an actor and you went to Royal Academy of Dramatic Art or to a drama school, you went to learn how to act upon a stage speak the king's english as it was known there yes. and television was in its infancy but television has started to take over and over and then of course more and more young people or whatever wanted to become actors in order to get television because it got better paid than the other and it might have a bit longer life it seems to me without consciously attempting it maybe it's due to my agent as well as keeping a fair balance between the theater and television i never made a big success of being on many films i made some films with ken russell but i never would become a film star because that, that was i mean film stars then were the men were rather handsome young men and things and brethren i I was all right, but I wasn't handsome, as it were. But um, there were plenty of roles, I suppose, one might have played. But no, I've, I've had a very good, fortunate, thank God. Talking time. about movies, you and I meet up occasionally at um, yes, film we're, festivals. We're renowns, don't we? Renowned film renowned. festivals. Uh, the, the, didn't I have a good one last, this year, was it? No, yeah. last year. This year? This year. Yeah. Well, you opened it. A thousand seater. Yes, I yeah. did, didn't I? It was St. Albans, yeah. It was totally packed. Yeah, I know. And I thought, uh, I quite rightly paid them a tribute because they managed such a huge success and introduced people to so much of the, their history and young people seeing things uh, that they would never see anywhere else now, would they? Because television doesn't show the old films except... That that's channel. it, and that's Talking Pictures channel. Yeah, of course, Talking isn't Pictures. It? Yeah. Uh, I saw what I saw something else the other night. I'd never seen it when it was first went out. The Sherlock Holmes double or something like that or whatever. Uh, and actors, of course, who one has worked with. And television was a great source of of, of financing an actor who wanted to be in the theatre, but couldn't make a huge amount of money on the theatre. But the television subsidised in many respects. But nowadays, of course, lots of people just come in to want to work in television. Do you watch much TV or not really? Yeah, I do. I, I, I watch more than Linda. Uh, Linda's got her own work because she writes novels. But yes, I do. I catch up with things. I have my favourite... I like thrillers still. Linda mm. writes thrillers. So, yes, I know. So that's, that's great. And I like watching um, uh, detective stories and things like that. Or uh, like, I did a hustle. I remember doing a hustle. Yes, you um, did. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that series. And I always wanted to be, uh, what was the other one? New Tricks. I like that. 
I, I, and and uh, but but they're mostly thrillers. And I catch up with some things because you can do that now. Mm. You don't have to record, do you? No, it's you, easier you, now, isn't it? Yeah. You get almost any program you want, and that and renown is is a great deal. Brian, can I thank you for first of all picking me up from the station and taxi no. driver? You're going to have to walk back. Yeah, no, that's not true. And a lovely lunch. I thank you. Walk. No, it's clearly <laughs> my pleasure. I know we don't see each other that often, but it's always a pleasure when we do meet up. And we do have a quite a bit of history as well as being born on the same we do. island. We do. I've um, seen you in East. Well, I've seen you all. You over. see me. You see me everywhere. Yes, I've seen you everywhere. All. John knows all my secrets. Yes. Nearly. But I'm keeping them all. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why you're popular, because you do. There are so many people who, who aren't really interested in you. You know that. You can see that from their eyes. They're doing a job, understandably. But you're, 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 you always seem to be interested in your subject. If you're not, you put on a very good show. <laughs> and we can trust you yes. with what, what, what we tell you, uh, which is no small praise. Thank you. And my next podcast will be Brian's lovely wife, Linda Regan. You've been listening to John Hannah Meeks, courtesy of Isle of Wight Radio. Don't forget to look at my website, johnhannam.com, for news of more interviews and how you might purchase my books. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.